Yeah. <laughs> Folks, look at that sign. That's what. We, that's what. <laughs> that's what we had at the party, and I didn't appreciate it then either. <clears throat> Speaking. Yeah. Speaking of the party, thank you all, uh, class leaders, for providing our classes, all three, such a wonderful opportunity Thursday night. It was a great crowd, and everyone looked marvelous, and we laughed and enjoyed each other's company and had delicious food and uh, laughed in some cases with one another, some cases at one another, and uh, I know that takes so much work and we are grateful uh, i'm speaking for brother chuck and i and all who attended and so we are we are very very thankful for you all and thanks for doing that and also you presented us with extremely generous gifts um uh, chuck has a quite a burden for a particular ministry and i do for another and you know chuck he has such a heart for this organization called uh, combat marine outdoors it's not just for Marines, it's for uh, military people, soldiers and others who are, are, have been very seriously wounded in combat. And this is a chance to take them away and let them hunt and uh, feel appreciated and respected and loved on and even hear the gospel. So Brother Chuck is quite invested in that organization, does a marvelous work. And you provided in his name a very generous gift to that organization and then did the same for me uh, to another organization called Hope for Israel. It's a missions group that we work with when we go to Israel, and they're native Israelis, and they work over there. And I know that that gift will be well used, and we're just honored and privileged that it's sent out from the church in our name. So, uh, frankly, we couldn't think of a, a more marvelous... We have everything here, and there are needs around the world and even in our area and so thank you so much for doing that it's uh it, it's something we do not take lightly we had a wonderful wonderful time and uh chuck and i think we should do it like once a week al so can, <laughs> can I get the team ready to no i'm kidding once is enough <clears throat> it was a great time well now we are in genesis chapter 32 and let me call your attention to it there genesis chapter 32 and we'll look at a little bit of it today and finish the rest of it, Lord willing, next week. There's just a lot in this chapter, as you will see. Here's how it begins. Now, as Jacob went on his way, he's in traveling mode. From where? He was in a place called Padan Aram, which is in modern-day Iraq. He was there for 20 years. Uh, he uh, found two wives there and worked for them for a long time. His relative Laban was their father, required that Jacob work for him. Jacob feels like he's fulfilled his responsibility now. He has not only two wives, but he's become quite a wealthy man. And he's anxious to get out from under the umbrella of Laban, who... Uh, was maybe even a greater trickster than Jacob. Uh, the deceiver was out-deceived 
by the master deceiver Laban. So enough is enough. Uh, Jacob is leaving. So he's on his way from Padan Aram back to what would be the, uh, the place we call today Israel, in that day the land of Canaan. So that, that's, that's where he's traveling to. And in the course of so doing, notice it says, the angels of God met him. Do you believe in angels? Okay, good. Just checking. That's the right answer. I mean, we're reading about them right here, so they are to be believed. This is not mythology. This is the Bible. Angels are spoken of in both testaments. They're mysterious. We wish we knew more about them than we are permitted to know about them. What we do know is that they are ministering spirits, meaning they serve at the behest of Almighty God. They do what he tells them to do. And they perform multiple ministries, many of which we're unaware of. I like the passage that says, you know, extend yourself in a good way to folks because you might be entertaining angels unawares. You see that? I reminded Chuck he was in our last class. Apparently, he doesn't uh, care much for this class because <laughs> I'm just saying, I notice he's not here. Let that speak for itself, but I'm here. I care. So anyway, I told him in the last class that he should start being nicer to me because I may be one of these, you know, that, and obviously he can't. There's no way. There's not a thing angelic about that guy. So, but anyway, so, 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 no, I'm going to tell you something. This is not the first time Jacob has had an encounter with angels. He did way back in Genesis chapter 28, but the circumstances were different. In Genesis 28, he wasn't going to the promised land. He was running from it. Why? Why was he running away from the promised land? Anyone remember? What? His brother, what's his brother's name? Esau wanted to kill him. Why? Yeah, whatever you said in tongues right now. I don't, I didn't. Yeah, he, want, he, maybe he skunked his brother out of his birthright and blessing. Remember, this is the deceiver. This is the trickster. This is the schemer. This is Jacob. You know what I mean? And Jacob's mama tells him, your brother's a little mad. In fact, so much he wants to kill you. So take off for a little bit. Go with your uncle Laban. You know, hang out until your brother, your brother calms down and you'll come back. 20 years have passed. And his mother never gets to see him. She passed away. So on that occasion, he's leaving from Beit Lechem, Bethlehem, house of bread. He's leaving the promised land to escape his brother's wrath. And even though he's a flawed human being, there God sends angels to minister to him. They appear on a ladder. Uh, 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 They're ascending and descending on this ladder, which extends into heaven. And uh, Jacob named that place Beit El, Beit El, Bethel, House of God. What would he mean, house? It wasn't a building. It was, there was no synagogue, temple, tabernacle, church. He's out in the outdoors. And yet it became to Jacob the house of God. He experienced the very real presence of a real God at Beth El. I liken it to his conversion experience. Maybe not exactly, but 
But that's the time he had a knowledge of God. But that's the time when he came to grips with the very real presence of God. And he acknowledged him there at Beit El. And so uh, he, he was visited by angels there when on the run. But now he's visited by angels again, not when he's leaving the promised land, but when he's going back in to the promised land. And when God met him at Beth El, he gave him promises. And he said, I am going to be with you wherever you go. And I promise to bring you back into this land. Now, in 20 years, much has transpired in Jacob's life. Some good things, many hardships. He had ups and downs, such as you and I have. There were gains, there were losses, there were all kinds of things. There were good times and bad, and yet the one constant through it all was the faithfulness of God, which is now being proven to Jacob. God, after 20 years of ups and downs in Jacob's life, is proving to him, I made you a promise at Beth El, and now it's time to fulfill it. I'm going, as I said, I'm going to bring you back to the promised land. Folks, uh, what we're seeing is Jacob growing. He is not who he needs to be just by virtue of his Bethel experience. He needs other experiences, some of which you will see in this chapter. This chapter really explains to me why we Christians go through hard times. You know, we always question, why God? I don't think it's so I don't think it bothers God when we ask him that question. But I think we may get a bit of an answer in this chapter, at least the few verses we'll look at this morning. Anyway, his Bethel experience was magnificent, but not enough. It's like with a Christian, a, a very legitimate salvation experience. It's wonderful. In an event, at a point in time, we get saved. From what? From the judgment of God. That's not something you grow into. That happens the minute you accept the merits of the Lord Jesus Christ, you see. But we're not done. He's not done with us. We're not exactly Christ-like just because we've had a Bethel experience. We need others. We have to grow. And God is so intent on us growing that he will allow us to experience things the likes of which you will see Jacob experience in this chapter. So verse 2, Jacob said when he saw them, this is God's camp. So he named that place Machanaim, Machanaim, and I know you are dying to say that. So I'll say it one more time, and then I'll give you a shot. It's Machanaim. Here we go. Machanaim. Yeah, I do that because many of you have congestion, and it'll, you know, if ever you got a little something, just say a couple Hebrew words. It just... And what it means, the word means two camps. Machanai means two camps. What's up there? Well, let me uh, explain this one. In Genesis chapter 31, the prior chapter, verse 25, there's a phrase. It says this, Laban caught up with Jacob. Now, Jacob had pitched his tent in the hill country. Ah, so we now know Jacob was camping at this time. One camp, therefore, was his own, the one on earth, the visible camp. Ah, but now he becomes aware of another one, kind of an invisible camp. It's God's camp. Jacob had Bethel experience, but he needs more. He knows that God met him there, but he still yet doesn't know how to depend on God. He's quite self-reliant. 
which really is another religion. You either depend on God or self. Self-reliance is another religion. It's a false religion. Why? Because you're not very dependable. You're not God. You're not even such a good person, let alone God. You can't take care of yourself. Are you kidding? You can't fix the very things you broke. So self-reliance is a very unhealthy thing, and God wants to rid us of it. And so he has now this Mahanaim experience where he realizes I'm very aware of my situation on earth, but I haven't been aware of the fact that God is there with me in it. So he named this place two camps. And what about you and me? We're in a wilderness journey of sorts as well. We're on our journey to our place of promise also. Our final destination is heaven. And it's a rocky journey for many of us. Hardships and loss and hurts along the way. And it's possible in situations like that to become enveloped by the harsh reality in our camp. But it's necessary to remember then, Machanaim. God did not just save us, give us a boot in the behind and say, now that you're redeemed, you're on your own. He saved us so as to say, I not only have taken care of your sin problem, I've taken care of your aloneness problem. You may feel alone, it's okay, but you're not. Because God's desire is not just that we have a Bethel experience, knowing uh, that he's present, but also that we know that he yearns to abide with us and us with him. He is with us in whatever it is that's transpiring in our camp. We have to have the eyes of faith to see what cannot be seen with actual eyes, the very real hovering presence of Almighty God, watching, looking, orchestrating even the distress in our camp towards ultimate good. So that's what's happening here with... Jacob, Machanaim, two camps. And in verse 3, then after these experiences, Bethel, Machanaim, then Jacob sent messengers before him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. So uh, here's the deal. You might say this is not unreasonable. He's imagining his brother Esau is going to seek revenge. And so he wants to send some messengers before him, probably to appease his brother Esau. Esau is just hot with anger and wants to kill Jacob, which Jacob thinks is a real possibility. If he thinks, I can send some messengers before me, maybe I can cool him down so he won't kill me. So this is right after he had the two camp experience. Isn't it interesting that we can know of God we can walk with God, and then we can take off as if he's not there for us. And so Jacob works out his own plan here. Though it's not entirely unreasonable, there's not a bit of trust in God in any of it. In fact, up until this point in Genesis 32, we don't have one record of one prayer uttered by Jacob to God. Nothing. We have a record of his self-reliance, self-confidence, we have a record of his uh, 
schemes and deceit and all. We don't have one record of him falling on his knees and calling out to Almighty God. So he's going to send these messengers to his brother, who is located in Seir, which is the country of Edom. Uh, Edom would be modern-day southern Jordan. So just to give you a bit of geographic mooring point, the Jordan River runs in that land north to south. It's like a vertical thing. It's a natural boundary between Israel on the west side of the Jordan River and Jordan on the east side of the Jordan River. So uh, Esau set up his uh, habitation on the eastern side of the Jordan River in the southern part of modern-day Jordan. And uh, Jacob is sending these messengers to to try to appease him. And in verse 4, he also commanded them, saying, Thus you shall say to my lord Esau. So it's not just that he's sending messengers. He's orchestrating the whole thing. He even wrote their script for them. Think about this. This is a guy who has spent no time in prayer. He's, he's saying, I, yeah, I'm sort of in potential trouble. I have got to do something. And that's our tendency. This is happening. I've got to do something. But man, he just had, he had the Bethel experience. He had the Machanayim experience. Where is God? I mean, did he buy us with a price and then lose interest in us? What's up? So, so Jacob is acting that God is there, but not there. And so he writes the script for the messengers, and this is what it consists of. Thus you shall say to my Lord Esau, thus says your servant Jacob. I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. Can you see these words, my Lord Esau? And then you see your servant Jacob? Is that how brothers are supposed to speak to one another? Are you kidding me? You, you come upon, if someone's your brother, you say, hey, baby, high fives, what's happening? You know, it, it, it's just, it's just an, uh, it's nothing dignified about it. it. You don't have to be. It's just, uh, there's kind of intimacy. There's a connection there. This is a weird way for one brother. My Lord, Esau, I am your servant. I mean, what the, you know, that dignity and formality tells me they're not close. Here's an observation maybe you don't agree with. My observation is as formality in relationships goes up, it, it's, it tells me intimacy is down. If you're really safe and close with someone, it's just a slobbering, awkward get-together. When you get, you're just hugging on one another, and, man, there's nothing formal or dignified. We're just all over one another and dripping and whatever. But so this is closeness. In religion, this is just an observation I make. You don't have to buy this. It seems to me as liturgy and religious expression becomes more and more formal, uh, closeness to God goes down. You know, I don't want to have to go through a liturgy, a priesthood, or this, that, or anything to have access to Abba Father. I got to tell you something. Just dress the way I am. I don't, I don't need a mediator except the Lord Jesus, I, I, I don't need any formal approach. I could say, Daddy, I could say, Papa. I mean, that's the way it, and sometimes it's kind of slobbery and messy. Sometimes it's, it's not maybe the right words. It's just a kid 
pouring out his heart to Almighty God. But this has become very formal, which betrays the distance between these brothers, for crying out loud. They haven't talked, not even, not even a postcard, 20 years, for crying out loud. You know what I mean? So all of a sudden, you got all this, my Lord, your servant. Now, I want to share something with you, which is really ridiculous. Uh, it's it's a, such a sidelight, you may be thinking, why did he even drag us into that? Well, it's because I have a lot of time and i got to use it up. <laughs> so can you see those three words in verse 4? I have sojourned. I have sojourned. Yeah. So you know what that means? It means I have sojourned. It means Jacob is, is saying to his messengers, tell my brother Esau, I've been traveling in a strange... And that's what it means. There's nothing more to it than that. Well, unless you want to make more of it. So... Um, do you know that every Hebrew word has a, a numerical equivalent? So Hebrew letters also have a number associated with them. So if you take a Hebrew word and add up the numbers, you get a total sum. Why you would want to do this <laughs> is perplexing to me. But people make like a sport out of this thing. So the rabbis uh, have... Taking this phrase, I have sojourned, they've computed the numerical equivalent of those three words in Hebrew, and the total is 613. And the rabbis say, whoa, this is major cool. Well, the rabbis don't actually talk like that, but uh, I'm just saying that. They say this is unbelievable because the rabbis also think they have identified for the rest of us Jews 613 commandments in the five books of Moses. So not just the Ten Commandments, they say there are subsidiary commandments that f emanate from the Ten Principal Commandments. You get a total of 613 commandments. By the way, that's one of the reasons I became a Christian. Being a Jewish guy is like excruciatingly difficult. You got 10 measly commandments. We got to do 613. You know, when I became a Christian, I said, man, this is like a walk in the park. Those Gentiles have it easy. It isn't quite like that. But anyway, so, so they say, here's what they say. They say, the words I have sojourned total 613, which mean when Jacob was a sojourner, even outside of Israel, when he was in a foreign land, still he complied with all 613 commandments. And that means every Jew, no matter where that Jew is located, has to also keep the 613 commandments. That's what they get out of this. I'll tell you what I get out of it. Out of the words, I have sojourned, I get, I have sojourned. <laughs> there is nothing more to it. In fact, talk about missing the forest for the trees. You can actually minimize the power of God, the convicting power of God's word by playing fanciful games with it like that. But it's not just my Jewish peeps who do that. Uh, a lot of people are prone to it. For instance, I would really caution you and me about rushing to a bookstore to be uh, the first to buy books so-called religious books that have in their titles mysteries, secrets, hidden, unlocking the this. I'd be really careful about that. Can I tell you something? God is not a God who hides things from his kids. He's a God who wants to reveal himself to his kids. Do you know all 66 books of the Bible are books of revelation? 
that title is given specifically to the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. But they're, they're all books that reveal God's will and ways. Because he's a loving father, and he wants his children to get to know him. In that sense, there are no secrets, mysteries, unlocking stuff in the Bible that God has entrusted to a select few of elitists who write books that the rest of us common folks have to buy in order to see the mysteries and hidden stuff. For instance, years ago, there was a book called The Bible Code. Remember that one? It was written by a fellow named Michael Drosnin. I'll tell you about him. Michael Drosnin is an unsaved Jewish mathematician. Three strikes, you're out. <laughs> unsaved Jewish mathematician. He did this number game. He went to the Old Testament scriptures. He did mathematics and saw the sum total of different Hebrew phrases from which he concluded, I found secrets in the Bible. Hidden secrets which tell us the future. That's what he did. Here's the name of Prince Charles or whatever. I mean, the, 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 this phrase, this has the same numerical equipment as the name Prince Charles. I'm making that part up. But that's essentially what he was getting at. And you know what many Christians did? Flocked to the bookstore to buy it. In fact, Sage Montians, which is a new word, by the way. Feel free to, <laughs> to use it. Sage Montians around here excitedly carried that book around with them by the droves over here and approached, student, have you read this yet? Have you read this yet? Folks, what kind of a heavenly father do you and I have? Who would withhold from us those for whom he died? His pearls, his secrets, his treasures, only to reveal them to an unsaved Jewish guy who doesn't even know the author of the book we read. Could I tell you the key to unlocking the scriptures? First, you got to get to know the author. Once you know the author, the author puts aspects of himself in us. In fact, he puts his person in us in the form of a spirit, the Holy Spirit. And one of the ministrations of the Holy Spirit is to illuminate scripture. So we can understand and apply it. As far as the secrets, come on. God is not a God from whom you have to squeeze out his will and his ways. He stands willing and waiting to show us what he expects of us. In fact, look what it says in Deuteronomy. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever. So that we may observe the words of this law. So I got to tell you something. I don't want to know more than what God has chosen to reveal to me. And I'm not going to tea leaves, psychics, horoscopes, Bible code books, crazy hidden secret books to squeeze out of God more than he chooses to reveal to me. I don't want to have more knowledge than he thinks is healthy for me to have. There are other sources of it, but they're not of the... Holy Spirit. I would be very careful about books written by guys who think Isaiah chapter 9 was talking about a tree growing in Manhattan. Sheer and utter speculation and nonsense. And the Christian body has bought up his books. Big mistake. I'd be very careful about these books on the four blood moons. Reading into an atmospheric phenomenon 
things God has not revealed to us in Scripture. Highly speculative. I would be very careful about books about the Shemitah. Now, if you don't know what that is, good, stay pure. It's a Hebrew word, and another guy has written a, a sequel to his first book on this deal, and he's going to reveal to us all kinds of secrets about the Shemitah. It's like a jubilee in Hebrew. He's reading all kinds of... And this particular guy, if you go to his website, which I have, um, almost all of his sermon series have the word secret or hidden, something in that, because we naive people uh, are attracted to that. Uh, to which I say, I mean, has the Bible become that boring to you? Have you already sufficiently exhausted and mined its treasures so that you got to find out secrets and mysteries and this and that that God doesn't have for you to know? Be very, very careful. Even people who ought to know better promoting these things, having conferences and all the rest. Could I just tell you, get counsel. <laughs> In abundance of counselors, there's victory. So anyway, by the way, uh, this is called biblical numerology, and it has an occultic ingredient to it. It's called gematria, from like geometry. It's Hebrew. Uh, uh, Jews, a certain sect of them, are, are into this gematria. It's part of the Kabbalah, which is Jewish mysticism. And so if you respect Madonna's faith experience then you should give yourself to the Kabbalah. Madonna is into the Kabbalah. In fact, makes trips to Israel to a center of Kabbalistic thinking in the northern part of Israel. I know the place. And so she goes there. And, uh, you know, they, these are people who find secrets from the Bible by doing all these numerical tricks and stuff like that. And this poor lady doesn't even know the author of the Bible. I don't resent her. I pray for her. You know, but for God's grace, I would be her in darkness. I, so I'm not trying to put her down. I, I would love for her to look up and see the Lord Jesus. But, but, but here's the deal. That's, that's all of this, this stuff. So be very careful about all these books that are reading into things, speculative stuff. Be very, very careful. I mean, it has an allure and stuff like that, but uh, it's very dangerous ground to require more from God than he's willing to give us in 66 books of scripture. So anyway, the I have sojourned thing is just an illustration of how to mess up scripture. So now verse 5, I have oxen and donkeys, Jacob is saying, I have oxen and donkeys and flocks, male and female servants. I've sent to tell my Lord that I might find favor in your sight. So that's part of the script, remember. He wants his uh, delegated messengers to share with Esau. And what's behind this? See, this guy is, you might say this is not unreasonable. Yeah, but there's not one ounce of dependence on God in any of this. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, I need Esau to be persuaded that I don't need stuff. I got a lot of stuff. He needs, I, I need you to persuade Esau that what I did to him 20 years ago, you know, I schemed and got his stuff. I got his birthright and I got the blessing due the firstborn. I need you to tell him that I got all this money in the bank. That's the livestock was the equivalent of wealth. Tell him that I got so much wealth, I'm not tempted to do again to him what I once did to him. And this too may appease him, you know, because he may think if I'm still a schemer, you know, he's going to kill me. He doesn't want to be schemed against again. But I don't have no need to scheme. Look at all this stuff I have. I got all this. Anyway, that's what's going on. So the messengers returned to Jacob saying, we came to your brother Esau 
and furthermore, he is coming to meet you. And this was a pleasant surprise, I'm sure. And 400 men are with him. Oh, baby. So imagine yourself to be Jacob, and you hear this. Could you please tell me what he is feeling? Not thinking. Just <laughs> scream out some emotions if you're Jacob. What? Yeah, you got the fear thing going on. Anxiety, Anxiety for sure. Absolutely. Yeah, terror, absolutely. And I, I was a little terrified by the loudness with which that was just expressed. But it, 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 absolutely. All of these things. In fact, you can see it. Look, verse 7. You, you nailed it. Then Jacob was, here you go, greatly afraid and distressed. So you got it right. So here's the deal. Um, Jacob's past did not go away because there were unresolved issues with it. And now it's demanding a voice again in his life. But, you know, he could resolve some of the past issues easily. He could have said, Esau, please forgive me. Nothing. He skips town. He has no communication with his brother for 20 years. I mean, if you've got unresolved stuff in the past, it's going to continue to haunt you. By the way, this is one of the number one techniques, it seems to me, of Satan. He tries to get us, uh, get this, through guilt. He tries to get us tied to the past through guilt. And he tries to get us tied to the future through anxiety. There it is. Why does he do that? I'll tell you why. Satan knows a little more than we do about this. He knows that God does not give us grace to go back into the past in our head. And he doesn't give us grace to go into the future in our head. He only gives us daily bread. He gives us grace for the here and now. That's it. So Satan figures this out. So he says, if I can get that Christian in his or her head through guilt to be tied back to the past, I can mess them up even though they're saved. If I can get them worry about tomorrow, I can mess them up because God's not giving us grace to worry about tomorrow, right? He, he, give us our deal. I mean, but God, but I would like a week supply. See, if you give me like a week supply, then all I got to do is talk to you once a week. That's the idea. But if I'm dependent on God every day, I got to talk to him every day. See what I mean? That's why we only get daily bread. So as far as the it's really ridiculous to think about the past. It's past. It's just as ridiculous to think about the future. Worry about it. I'll tell you why. You may not have it. So here's an encouraging word. You may die before you get to that future you're worried about. And when you die, wake up, you'll say, oh, man, what a waste of time. I worried about all that stuff, and I never even got there. I mean, I don't want to ruin your day or anything, but this may be your last day. You know, I mean, let's just, nobody knows this stuff. So that's why, God, I'm not giving you grace to worry about contingencies. You, you may not even get to experience. So this is what Satan does. So, so, so you want to stay in the, in the present. And, and, and that's, that's where God wants us, the here and now. That's, that's all we have. You know what someone said? You either belong to your past or you belong to the cross. Which is it going to be? I have a past. I don't want you to know everything about my past. I'm not thrilled to publicize it. There have been certain activities and behaviors that I'm no longer engaged in that I used to engage in. Now, i tell you something. My past doesn't bother me a lick. Why not? Because I've been forgiven. That's exactly right. The Bible says he's taken all that stuff, put it behind his back. Well, I'm not going to go back there and remind him of it. He separated all our sins as far as the east is from the west. Jesus paid it all. And the Bible says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's new. Well, why am I going to go back to the old if I'm new? You know what the Bible says, Romans 8, verse 1? 
There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That includes self-condemnation. I am not going to crucify myself for my past because my Savior has already been crucified for my past. You see what I mean? That doesn't bother me a lick anymore. I've resolved the issues. It's done. It's over and, and, and done. So, so but anyway, Satan is, is pulling Jacob back into the past because it hasn't been sufficiently dealt with. And he's greatly afraid and distressed. And here's what he does. He falls to his knees and with a broken and contrite spirit. And after a time of fasting, he prays to Almighty God. He pours himself out to Almighty God, asking, seeking for his help. We don't read anything like that. He was greatly afraid and distressed. And what did he do? It's another scheme. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks, the herds, the camels into two companies. What is up with that? This is the guy who had the Bethel experience, the God who had the two-camp Machanayim experience. And instead of praying, he's working out another deal. He says, I'll divide up my stuff and my people into two camps because Esau, if he's mad, he'll, he, may he may destroy one camp. The other camp will get away. That's what he's doing. You know, can I tell you something? When you, you and I experience hurtful emotions like fear and distress like these, guilt, depression, anxiety, all those things, it's like a light bulb should go off, like an alarm that says, pray. Yeah, it's like this. You're in your car. A light goes on on the dashboard. You ever see this stuff? What does it say? Time for engine repair or something? Check, check engine. So how do you feel about that when that comes on? Are you, like, excited? Yay, well, I'm so happy. I got to take time out and money. I got to bring it to a mechanic. Who knows what he's going to charge me for this engine re repair, whatever the other. So you, you say to yourself, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to take a piece of tape, like electrical tape, and put it over that deal. I don't do I mean, no, 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 no. Nobody does that. You say, man, I got to deal with this. But that's what emotions do. Emotions, don't, do, don't put a piece of tape. Don't deny it. Get right into it. What do you do? Don't do what Jacob did. Oh, I'm experiencing this. I have to do something about it. No, 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 no. I'm experiencing fear and guilt and shame, whatever it is. Depression, oh, i got to pour out my heart. And what do you do? You do it like this. You say, oh, God, I'm dying. I, not only do I don't think I'm going to make it, I don't want to make it. I don't like this life. I don't like my camp. I'm miserable. Why do you want a miserable kid? By the way, God, I guess even if I'm miserable, I'm still your kid. That's good. But if I'm your kid, why am I going through all this? Where are you? I thought you were loving and compassionate. God, you probably are. You're probably up to something I don't get. I suppose that's my real problem. I don't get it. I don't see how this fits, how this is good, how this is going to lead to good. That's just me. I don't see the purpose of all this, oh God. I need help. I can't get out of this. Where am I going to go? Who's going to help me out of this? I need you. I don't have the potential to resolve this. I need you. You said you would care for me. You said you'd never leave me or forsake me. You said you're my father. You said you are my heavenly husband. Be that to me. You said you're my, the great physician. Be that to me. 
I need you. I'm not going to make it without you. I don't see the good of this. Oh, but wait, God. Maybe I do see some good. I mean, but for this, I suppose you and I would not be talking right now. I guess I have to admit, I probably spend more time with you when things aren't going well. That's a good thing. We'll talk more later. And if that thing, that, that light on your dashboard happens 15 times a day, that emotional experience, then you become a prayer machine. Again, it's not dignified. It's not formal. You don't go through a quorum. You don't wear a collar. You don't need incense. You don't need pastors, preachers, church membership. You need a broken heart. And the God who you met at Bethel, the God who reminds you there's two camps, Machanayim, and you just pour your grieving, hurt, sloppy, undignified self out to him. And then you take a deep emotional breath. And you feel better until the next time. And then you do the same thing. And what has that done? It has enhanced in your mind a sense of dependence on God that you would not naturally have. Because you're Jacob. And you would rather work it out yourself. Jacob is respecting Esau's strength more than God's. And in the process of not leaning on God's resources, notice what he does. He ends up dividing his own. And you want to see something ironic? Can you see the last words at the end of verse 7? Into two companies. You know what the Hebrew word is for two companies? Machanaim. The same word that was used earlier of Jacob's camp and God's camp. Now that same Jacob is aware only of his camps. He's lost sight of the vertical dimension. See? And that happens to us too. I'm not beating up on Jacob. That's all of us. I need God's help. I need him to, listen, break me so that he can change me. And you do too. And God doesn't wait for our permission to do it. He uses the stuff of life to bring us to a point of desperation so that we're emptied of self, so that we cling to him for blessing. At the end of this chapter, Jacob said, I will not let you go until you bless me. And that's the spot God wants to be put in. He wants us to be so needy that we say, I have no body to cling to but you. I will not cease clinging to you until you bless me. And to get us there requires distress in our camp it just does so he says what he does in verse 8 if Esau comes to the one company and attacks then the company left will escape and up until this time in the record of Jacob's life we don't have one recorded incident of him praying until next week <laughs> and finally in verse 9 you see Jacob pouring out his heart to Almighty God. It's kind of a model, I think, for how we could pray. And we will, Lord willing, look at it next week. Finally, Jacob is willing to see, I am not my own God. I am not responsible for myself. I am not able. Folks, 
A false religion is an appeal to human potential. Could I tell you what we humans have as our potential? It is the potential to sin all the more. That is our nature. We don't have the potential to right wrongs and straighten what we have rendered crooked. We don't have it. But there's quite uh, an incentive to buy into the human potential movement when we say to our kids, believe in yourself. That's the human potential movement. We are putting a curse on our kids when we say that. Believe in them. Neither you nor I can even be counted on to take the next breath. Please tell me what potential we have if even inhaling and exhaling is provided by God. Better than telling our kids, believe in yourself, we should say, God has designed you to be uniquely you. He's given you certain strengths and not others. And in the course of your life, God wants to use you to please him just the way you are. He has great potential for you if you just walk with him just the way you are. That's a better message than believe in yourself. How about this message? You can be anything you want to be. That is just popular. I mean, you get that in school. That is a lie. I've offered you this illustration. I'll do it again because I'm a glutton for punishment. What if I tell you, and this is true, I have always wanted to be an NBA basketball player. <laughs> I can tell by your response. Uh, you, you have just, you have just uh, smothered my dream. Thank you so much. Here's the deal. I don't have the potential, even though I believe in myself, to be an NBA basketball player for obvious reasons. It's just not going to happen. So when we say that to our kids, it's not true. You can't be anything you want to be just because you set your mind on it. If that's what you tell your kids, you're giving them a new religion. You're saying, don't depend on God. You, you say, depend on your mind power. What? You can't think new realities into existence. That's to usurp the role of the creator. Only he can create something out of nothing. You can't. And the human potential movement has found its way in the church. You know, all of these uh, positive confession, don't think negatively preachers. That's the human potential movement. Are you kidding me? That's crazy. Believe in yourself. Think it into existence. I'm agreeing with you, brother. That's a good one. So now, not only do I singularly think stuff into existence, I team up with someone else. What are we, like ganging up with God? My brother agrees with me that I should get that Cadillac. Therefore, you got to give it to I me. Mean, what is that's all an appeal. You see how subtle the evil one? It's all an appeal to self, to self. And you know what God wants to do? Crucify the self so that we're emptied of self and have plenty of room for the Lord Jesus in the form of the Holy Spirit to fill our lives. So that means dying is the normal Christian life. So many people say the normal Christian life is smooth sailing. It's not true. The actual normal Christian life is turbulence on the water. Why? 
because the turbulence obligates us to run to the captain of the ship. You understand what I'm saying? So I, ha I haven't alleviated the agony some I can see are experiencing right now, but I want you to know your agony is within normal limits. You're not weird. There's no pathology there. There's distress in your camp. Please remember it's two camps. That's all. Just remember it's two camps. Now, next week, Lord willing, we'll get together and possibly go through the rest of this chapter, and you'll see what happened with Jacob through all of this. He's an example uh, for us as well. So, Lord willing, we'll go through that next week. And until then, Lord, we look to you dependently and unashamedly. We don't want to put confidence in the flesh. We don't want to be self-confident, self-reliant. We want to be dependent on you, Lord Jesus, and you long for us to hold you to it, to provide for us, to take care of us. It's a pride thing, isn't it, Lord? We would rather be independent agents, but we can't. We are dependent, and that's not a dirty word. No, God, we are trying to be at the top of our game, but we can't when we're in distress. And what's more, we don't have to. Oh, God, even in the distress, have your way sustain us one day at a time i pray for myself and everyone here would you please give us this day our daily bread this we pray in jesus name the bread of life amen god bless you folks hope to see you next time